Good morning. Give thanks. Um, thanks to the church, uh, to this body of Christ. It's, uh, you know, a lot of people just go to church. They go on Sunday and they go home. But to be part of a church family, part of a, a church family that prays for you, that texts you, that calls you, that pats you on the back, that sends you emails, that drops food off to your house. I uh, lost my father three or four weeks ago. And um, my wife and my family and I can't thank everybody enough for how the body of Christ came around us and uh, comforted us and blessed us. And um, that is something that's worth more than gold to have a church family. So I just want to give you thanks um, for that. Okay. <laughs> Please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved brethren, <clears throat> whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Odia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Thank you. This morning we will be reviewing verses 1 through 4 from part 1 of this series, A Work of Spiritual Maturity and Stability, then moving into part 2, verses 5 through 7. In verse 1, we looked at standing firm in the Lord. This means to be stable, to remain steadfast, not to be moved in what you believe or how you live out the circumstances of your life. The Apostle Paul expresses this concern for all of us who would follow Christ to be spiritual sta spiritually stable and to stand firm in the Lord. The last time we came together on this passage, we looked at Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 7. We talked about the armor of God. And we noticed that this armor of God. To, to protect us in spiritual warfare is, is, is an armor that God gives each one of us and so that we can stand firm in the Lord. We talked about this standing firm is not an offensive posture. We don't go out and conquer and win battles, but it's a defensive posture. We sit and we stand in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the victory he has won 
over sin and death for us. But how can we have this kind of stability? How can we as Christians grow in this kind of maturity and stability in our walk with Christ? Well, in verse 1, he, he tells us how. He says, My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And the imperative commands that follow verse 1 outline a path to spiritual maturity and stability. In verses 2 through 9, Paul identifies for us six specific points to spiritual maturity and stability. You want to be stable as a follower of Jesus Christ? Then these are the points of teaching and instruction from the Apostle Paul. On February 17th, we looked at two of these points from verses 2 through 4, so I'm just going to do a little little review. In verses 2 and 3, we looked at point number 1. Resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where it all starts. It starts by committing yourself to Christ and in the fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's about extending grace and forgiveness to others as God has forgiven us in Christ. We spoke concerning the gospel and its demand upon believers as we see Christ on the cross reaching out to sinful man and reaching out to a holy God and reconciling us, redeeming us by his perfect love and his mercy for us. We looked at the relationship of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And however, whatever their disagreement was, how they could, come, they could continue to extend grace and love towards one another in Christ. We examined what true Christianity looks like and how we should depend on one another for strength and encouragement, accountability, and prayer. We've seen the importance of resolving conflict in a church as soon as possible. Because whatever we are disagreeing over, it's not that important in light of the grace and mercy given to us all. Undeserved, unmerited in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we looked at point number 2. Determined to respond to life's circumstances with joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We need to learn that joy is not tied to our circumstances. If you truly believe in God's promises that they'll never change, and he causes all things to work to good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. If we truly believe that God's character never changes, and in the midst of all our troubles and sufferings, that God is faithful and his mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3.23. If you and I really believe these truths, with all the promises in Scripture to us, then we can see through the heartaches, through the sufferings, 
knowing that we can fight for joy through them for our good and for God's glory. We talked about how difficult life can be. Losing a loved one, having a sick wife or husband, losing a child. There's so many things, a loss of a job, finances. There's a lot of things that can really eat at us and at times cause us to stumble and struggle in our walk with Christ. It happens to every single one of us. It happened to me as well. And what I learned through it and what Paul is teaching us is to keep our eyes on the cross. Keep our eyes on eternity. Keep our eyes on the promises that we have that we will be with Christ forever and we will enjoy Him forever. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. Okay, let us now continue in our study. In verse 5, we see point number three. Make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Notice verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Interesting how Paul puts this. He doesn't say, have a gentle spirit. He says, be known for a gentle spirit. Make it your ambition. Make it your reputation. Make it your Christian witness to be known for a gentle spirit. What do you want to be known for? Fill in the blank. Paul says, pursue this instead. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. That means within the church and outside the church. Paul uses this word gentle in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, where it is required of an elder. In Titus 3, 2, he says it's how we should respond to the unsaved. And in James 3, 17, he says, The wisdom from God, which we have received as believers, teaches us this quality. So what is this gentle spirit? Well, there is no one English word that completely captures this Greek word gentle. However, these are some close English translations. Sweet reasonableness. Big-heartedness. Graciousness. It is a generous treatment of others that doesn't insist on the letter of the law. It's similar to our expression, cut me some slack, or be gentle, be gracious. One commentator says, it's the courtesy and respect of others which prompts a person not to be forever standing on his or her own rights, but rather more concerned about others. It's opposite of being hard and contentious or having a self-seeking attitude. So let me ask again, are we as God's children, known by all inside and outside the church, for a gentle spirit, for being gracious, tender-hearted, kind to people? Paul tells us why we should. He says in verse 5, because the Lord is near. And I just want to take a moment to, uh, the evening my dad passed, 
Um, the nurses at the um, um, nursing home, it was almost like there was a line of people, workers there, uh, aides, uh, physical therapists. Uh, even the next day when I went back to get his stuff, they were just hugging uh, my mother and I and telling them how my father was so kind and so gracious and always thanking them and, and just just so tender-hearted to the people in his worst time of his life, fighting cancer. And it, it made me examine my heart and say, is that the re- reputation that I have? You know, is that when we go into a, a job or, or um, in any circumstance, a hospital or wherever we are, are we a light? Do we, are we a great witness for the Lord? Are we tender-hearted and gracious, even in our times of struggle and times of illness? It was a great witness to me. I really seen the Lord working in my dad's life, the humility and gentleness that God sown into him in those last months. But what does this mean, the Lord is near? Well, near could be a reference to space, that the Spirit of Christ is close to us, indwelling us. And, and that's, and that's uh, um, you know, that's a give me. But probably better to understand that the Lord is coming soon. Paul says, don't be quick to assert your rights, to defend yourself because the Lord is coming soon. And when he does, you will want him to be gracious to you, so be gracious to others. So let us be known for a gentle spirit because the Lord is near. The apostle says, do you want to be spiritually mature and stable in your walk with Christ? Do you want to stand firm in spiritual battle? Then point one, resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Two, determine to respond to life's circumstances with joy. And three, make it your ambition to be known for a gentle spirit. Now I'm going to camp out on this fourth point. Um, Point four, talk to God about everything. Talk to God about everything. Notice verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You probably have these verses memorized, right? I know I do. I don't memorize verses too well, especially as I'm getting older. They are the most quoted verses in Scripture concerning prayer in the Christian life. Notice, if you will, Paul basically breaks down this instruction of prayer in verses 6 and 7 into three parts. First, you have the prohibition. Be anxious for nothing. Second, you have the prescription. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And third, you have the promise and the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now let's take a look at each one of these parts of instruction from the Apostle Paul. First, you have the prohibition. Be anxious for nothing. Literally, stop worrying. The Greek word for anxious is an interesting word. And it can refer to a positive concern, which is a kind of concern that isn't sinful. It's used in the way a number of times in the New Testament, and even in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. There are some things that you and I ought to be deeply concerned about. For example, look back at Psalm 38, verse 18. Psalm 38, verse 18, David says, For for I confess my iniquity, and I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Listen, you and I should worry in a positive sense. We should be deeply concerned. We should be full of anxiety because of our sin until we deal with it until we seek God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of another brother and sister, confessing it to the Lord. It is right that it would cause us to worry and to be anxious concerning sin in our life. We should also be worried and concerned for the welfare of other Christians. Back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, When Paul was talking about Timothy, he says this, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. This is the same Greek word for anxious that's in Philippians 4, verse 6. Paul says he's going to worry about you. He's going to be deeply concerned about you in a positive sense. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25, makes the same point that you and I should be concerned about other believers in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 says, So that there be no division in the body, which is the church, but that the members, that you and I, may have the same care, That's our word, Greek word, for worry and anxious, for one another. Same care for one another. You and I should be deeply concerned about our sin, deeply concerned about other Christians, and deeply concerned about our spouse as well. You see this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 33 through 34, where he says, But the one who is married... But the one who is married is concerned about, there's our Greek word, the things of this world, how he may please his wife. And then at the end of 34, it's the same for the wife. But the one who is married is concerned about, worried about, the things of the world, how she may please her husband. It is right, men and women, For us to be deeply concerned about our spouses, to exercise a deep level of concern for them, 
and their circumstances. And finally, it is right to be deeply concerned about our worship and how we handle God's Word. Look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Luke 10, 38 through 42. And there we will see both the positive and the negative use of this Greek word in the context being put forth by our Lord. In Luke 10, towards the end of the chapter, in verse 38, we see the story unfolding about Martha and Mary. We see the Lord comes to their house in verse 40. Martha is running around, being distracted by all the preparations for the Lord's coming. Verse 39, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet in worship, listening to the Lord. Verse 41, the Lord says this. He says to Martha, 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 you are worried and bothered about so many things. Now there's the negative use of this word. But then he says in verse 42, but only one thing is necessary. In other words, it's okay to worry in a positive sense about one thing. For that's the thing Mary has chosen, which is focusing her worship and adoration on me. It's okay to have a positive concern, a deep concern in these ways. But interestingly, the same Greek word is also used in the New Testament to speak of a sinful concern, an anxiety, an anxiousness. It refers to an anxious, harassing care or attempting to carry the burden of the future on your own shoulders, especially over things you cannot control. Sounds like me. You see, in Scripture, this word crosses from a legitimate care to a sinful worry when it's about the details of your own life and your own personal needs. What are the things we worry about? What are the things that we are so deeply concerned about? You see, worry is not one of those sins we take too seriously, is it? We kind of joke and tease about it at times, right? On one hand, I get it. It's, it's understandable. At times, it can be humorous. But on the other, it's not. Worry is potentially a damning sin. I don't know if you ever really thought about that. Remember the parable of the soils. Turn back to Luke 8, verse 14. Luke 8, verse 14. in which Jesus describes the various conditions of a man's heart when the gospel is sown into it. And he describes one as a soil that was thorny. And he explained it this way. He says, the seed which fell among the thorns, and that is the gospel sown in a hard, unbelieving heart. He goes on. These are the ones who have heard the gospel, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. Listen, there are those who receive the gospel, 
And because of, of a sin no more serious than the worries and pleasures of this life, the gospel is choked out and never bears fruit of repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. This issue of worry is a very serious issue, and it's one that Jesus himself dealt with more than one occasion, but more clearly than anything, directly in the Gospel of Matthew. You remember during the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses this issue of worry in Matthew 6, verse 24. Matthew 6, verse 24. He makes this overarching point. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote to one and despise the other. You have to choose. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, for this reason, he says, stop worrying. He says, don't be worried about your life or what you'll eat or drink or your body and what you'll put on. Is life more than food, your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you worth much more than they? And who by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Can't be done. He goes on. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies in the field. They toil, they spin, and yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. If God so clothed the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown in the furnace, how much more will God clothe you, ye of little faith? I'd add that ye in. Jesus continues in verse 31. Do not worry then, saying what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear for clothing, for the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, all that you need, these things. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we sit here in 21st century America, and we say... Well, I'm off the hook for that message because I just go home and turn on the tap and I got water. Or I just go in the refrigerator and I got plenty of food. I got a freezer in the garage. Or clothing, just open up my drawer in my closet. I, I got so much to wear, I don't know what to do with half the stuff I have. Well, look at the next verse. We're not off the hook yet. Verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Listen, brothers and sisters, every time we worry, it's about what? It's not about the past. It's about the future. It may be something that happened in the past, and we're worried about how it's going to play out in the future. But it's not about tomorrow. It's about tomorrow. So nothing we worry about is legitimate, right? That's what Paul is saying back in Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, 
Let me ask you a simple question. Do you worry about anything? Well, let me give you something else to worry about. If you worry about anything in the negative use of this Greek word, the Apostle Paul and Jesus our Lord both say every time we do, we're sinning. You may say, well, I don't really understand that, Steve. I mean, it really doesn't hurt anybody else but me. Why would sin be a worry? Why would worry be a sin? Because when we worry, in effect what we're saying to God is, God, I understand you said that nothing happens outside of your sovereign control. And I understand, Lord, that everything that you say, everything works in my life for my good and your glory. I just have to say, Lord, I don't believe it. That's really what worry says. Paul tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how to keep from being anxious or worrying. So let us now look at the second half of verse 6, which is the prescription. This is the prescription for worrying. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Here's another one of those sweeping absolutes in everything, in every detail and event in life. In anything that causes us to be anxious, respond this way. He tells us to respond with prayer. Now, there's various kinds of prayer in Scripture, which we know about. There's the prayer of praise, prayer of adoration, prayer of worship, prayer or lament, but here the focus is on petitions, asking God for what we need. Paul uses these two words in verse 6, prayer and petition. Prayer is just the general word for prayer, usually used as a petition, asking for something. And supplication is a word that stresses a sense of need. Coming with a request because of an urgent or pressing matter. Sometimes you, and sometimes for others, and in this context, for you. Now notice what our responsibility is. It's caught up in the main verb of this sentence. It literally says, let it be known to God. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't already know what we need. We just read that on the Sermon on the Mount. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. So it's not to inform God. Instead, this is an expression. Let it be known to God. It's a common expression in the original language. It's a personal expression. Like we would express it this way. Just talk to God about it. Just talk to God. You see, the cure for worry and anxiety is simply to talk to God, to share it with God. How are we not to be anxious about anything? It's to be prayerful about everything. What are we to make known to God? Paul says, make your requests be known to God. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
It's rolling off everything that's a burden to you onto the Lord because he cares. There is no such thing as a chronic warrior with a powerful prayer life. The two don't go together. This command, by the way, to pray about uh, the things that make us anxious and worry provides us with a clue of really what the purpose of prayer is. You see, prayer isn't to inform God. we already seen that. Prayer isn't to change God's mind. And it's not to alter God's eternal plan. Instead, praying is for us. Prayer isn't about changing God. Prayer is about changing us. Why does God command us to pray? Because of what it produces in us. It produces humility in us. It produces dependence upon us. It, dep- it, it produces trust in us and confidence in God's sovereignty and, the pow- and his power in all the circumstances in our lives. There's another amazing thing about our prayers. Although they don't change God's eternal purpose and plan in the heavens, However, God does delight in using our prayers as a means through which he accomplishes his eternal plan and perfect will. I don't have time in the service to bring you to Hezekiah when he went up and prayed and he laid out his request before God. And the prophet sent message, Isaiah, and told him, God has heard your prayer. And I think that evening... Uh, The next day or whenever it was, God sent his angels and they protected and defended and accomplished what his prayer was. You may be saying today, I've heard this all before and it doesn't work. Why is it that some Christians pray and still don't experience any kind of peace? Notice back in Philippians 4 verse 6. Paul adds this brief prepositional phrase. And I am convinced, after studying this passage, that these two words make all the difference. He says, with thanksgiving. The real emphasis in this sentence is not even on praying, but on praying with thanksgiving. And that doesn't merely mean saying thank you. Instead, it's speaking of a deep, heartfelt gratitude towards God. Paul regularly associates prayer with thanksgiving. You can see it in a number of places. Uh, however, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And he talks about this issue of thanksgiving in so many other places. Uh, um, But in Revelation 7, verse 12, even in eternity, we will still be given thanks to the Lord. So So why is it that thanksgiving and prayer is so important? If you thank God before you know how he's going to answer your request, What does that show? 
It shows that you have confidence in God's goodness and his sovereignty, and you submit yourself to it. You're saying to God, thank you, regardless on how you're going to answer my prayer, because I know, because I know you, Lord, and I know you're good, and I trust you. You say, how can I develop this kind of confidence in God? The kind of confidence that will allow me to present my requests and to also to be thankful regardless of the outcome. This morning we read Psalm 100. It said, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. We are commanded to thank God. Why? Because in verse 5, because the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Listen, the foundation of our gratitude is found in the character of God himself. That's how you learn to pray with thanksgiving, regardless of how God chooses to answer your prayers. Because you find your hope and your confidence in the goodness and kindness and faithfulness of God. I learned a lot through this passage. So if we have seen the prohibition, we've seen the prescription, now let us take a look at the promise. And the promise is for all of us. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here's the result of talking to God about everything with a thankful heart. And I want you to notice the promise doesn't rely on you getting what you ask for. No, it comes to all who follow the prescription, whether they get what they ask for or not. The promise offered here is the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. Now, this could be describing a sort of inner peace, and I certainly believe it does involve that in a smaller measure. However, I believe in a much larger sense, it's better translated the peace which God himself possesses. In other words, the same peace and calm that characterizes the God of this universe, you get, we get, as a gift from God, with all the serenity in which God himself exists. You know, quick, I went to this, many years ago, I went to this art, uh, art thing out in, the, out in the Hamptons. I was working, and they had this exhibit, and I was... I brought this up in a sermon about 10 years ago. But anyway, looking at this, this picture, and it was a picture of this thunderous, powerful waterfall that was rushing over the top, coming down, blasting against the rocks. There was spray. I mean, it was a violent kind of waterfall. Tremendous. And in the picture, they had this little bird's nest that was just stuck inside the cleft of the rock where there was a bird feeding its mother, feeding its, its babies. And then it said, 
John 14, verse 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You and I are invited to share in God's peace. He adds, this peace surpasses all human comprehension. In other words, it's not human, it's supernatural. And I know many of you have experienced this kind of peace. It's, you just can't explain it. The only thing you can explain is that you're in Christ. That's how you're sensing it. The natural mind cannot begin to understand it. Paul says this supernatural peace will guard your heart and mind. This word guard was used in 2 Corinthians 11.32 to describe a troop of soldiers guarding a city in Damascus. That's the picture around this word guard. You see, stationed around those who lived in Philippi would have been this kind of troop presence, this guarding and protecting of the Roman peace around them as they lived their daily lives. If you talk to God about the things that trouble you, and if you're able to thank him in advance for whatever he decides to do, then Paul says the peace of God will be like a troop of soldiers guarding your heart and your mind in Christ. And that's the trouble spot, right? Our hearts and our minds. Anxiety is never in our circumstances. Anxiety starts in our hearts and in our minds. Two people can face the same circumstances in life, and one will be anxious and the other not. The real issue is what's going on inside our hearts, the center of our beings, and in our minds, the place where we conceive our thoughts. However, I don't believe Paul is separating them at all. What he is saying is the peace of God will comprehensively guard your entire inner being. Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Isaiah 26, 3, the steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Now, please don't misunderstand here. God is not promising to answer your prayers in the way that you want him to. He's not promising to remove all your troubles and difficulties in your life that you're praying about. Nor is God promising that the things that you have been worrying about won't happen. What God is promising is far more amazing. He's promising that if you will talk to him honestly and openly, and that's the charge here, talk to God honestly and openly, telling him about your struggles with a truly thankful heart for whatever he brings, he will do something supernatural in your heart. You'll enjoy the same kind of peace that God himself enjoys as he sits on, on his eternal, unshakable, untouchable throne. And if you will do that, 
the very same peace that God himself enjoys will stand guard over your entire inner being. So who can benefit from these amazing verses of Scripture? Notice how Paul concludes in verse 7. And I will conclude. Those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus today, then you have every reason to be thankful. In Christ, he gave us grace before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1.9 In Christ, God has chosen us before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1.4 In Christ, we are loved by God with an inseparable love. Romans 8.38-39 In Christ, we were redeemed and forgiven for all our sins. Ephesians 1.7 In Christ, we were justified before God. And the righteousness of God in Christ was imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 In Christ we have become new creations, sons and daughters of God through faith. If we are to stand firm in the Lord and walk in maturity and stability as followers in Christ and walk in the victory Christ has won for us on Calvary's cross, then let us apply these four points from the Apostle Paul as he laid them out before us in this passage. Resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Determine to respond to life's circumstances with joy. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men and talk to God about everything. Amen. I guess I must stand. Let's continue.